At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, making the case once again for the two-parent norm. A two-parent home being something that is a right for a child, we're simply saying the original design needs to be the one put in place. As some key voices on the left admit, intact families matter. Families headed by single mothers are five times as likely to live in poverty as married couple families. We'll look at the legislative agenda in California. The first few batches signed some requires teachers to undergo an online one-hour training every year and how to support LGBTQ students. And a key veto from the California governor. Had we not pushed back, I have no doubt that he would have signed it. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland and live in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. You can catch the stream at thewordseattle.com or download the app for KPDQ at the Apple App Store or at Google Play. Hey, thanks for joining us. We'll begin at home with the family. Facts concerning the family have been self-evident for years. Strong nations are comprised of healthy and secure families. And secure families are made up of married mothers and fathers who devote themselves to one another and their children. Well, that last line comes from a recent column by Jim Daly of Focus on the Family. The title, Two Parents Are a Right, Not a Privilege. Well, that column is a catalyst for the conversation with our first guest, Daniel Huerta also with Focus. He was a guest on WAVA in our nation's capital with Greg Seltz. And for Don Crow. Explain what you mean or what your organization is talking about when you say two parents are a right, not a privilege, and why that's really at the heart. Well, it's interesting when when you look at people talking about, man, what a a privilege, what an honor it is for this child to have two parents. And while we can see that with gratitude— it should be a right for a child to have that influence of a mom and a dad that is in their home, providing a secure attachment, a secure home that is intact. It seems that it's becoming more of an exception. And when you look at any of the statistics, there's a breakdown in a child's development when there is that chaos that's created in the home. It says if a storm has come and then you're expecting a child to just adjust and adapt to that storm, of development and God designed it in a very specific way. And when we look at it consistently through science, it is confirmed that the design is correct and that children need this as they're growing up. Now, can kids adapt and adjust and and uh, and, and do well? Yes, some. And and yet there's some that we see uh, that that really struggle in in their in their growing up, but also just financially at the very basic level. We see. Uh, when there is a single parent home, especially now as we see inflation and other factors going up, there, we see more and more of the poverty rate go up with within single parent homes. And you see a child 
many children scrambling, trying to do life in that kind of environment. So when we're saying a two-parent home being something that is a right for a child, we're simply saying the original design needs to be the one put in place. Well, you know, even what you just said, and I hear it all the time, well, the kids kids are adaptive. Kids, you know, they'll adjust. Well, that's kind of like saying, I mean, if, if I tear a ligament or I tear a muscle or whatever, yeah, yeah. I can get scar tissue and I can still probably function, you know. And, and I, sometimes when I hear that kind of stuff, like even with divorce, oh, the people will adjust. Well, yeah, it's like when you cut your arm off, you can probably still adjust. But it's going to be a radically different way of living. And, and so it's almost like we're starting to settle for less and less of what obviously God wants for us. He wants us to have intimacy. He wants us to have stability. He wants kids to, to have that risk-taking properly understood because they have a foundation in the home where there's security. All of those things are part of the design, and yet we're mm-hmm. jettisoning that all over the place as if we can fashion a new way of doing it, right? That's correct. And, and see, what, what marriage requires of us, is selflessness, sacrifice. Right. When another person is, is at their worst or, or not lovable in that moment, that's when you're actually practicing love. And if you have two people that are committed within a covenant and said, man, we're going to make this work, you begin to learn how to have emotional regulation, which is very hard for a lot of people. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so then what, what research has shown is that if, if there is emotion regulation in a marriage relationship, it increases marital satisfaction. Right. And if we see marital satisfaction go up, we see people wanting to stay in that. But what culture is saying is do whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good. And I can guarantee you if you go into marriage, there are going to be moments where you don't feel good and you don't feel happy. Right. And so then uh, at that point, you're given the green light to just kind of trade it all in, get a new car, right? Right. Uh, and, and that's not what this is about. This is about a transformation that, right. that you're missing out on. And uh, that transformation is not only for you as a couple, but, man, for your kids. Uh, they get a tremendous benefit from that momentum. Well, and I think sometimes people forget that God's view of family is it's even bigger than just your relationship. Uh, and your children. It, it's an extended family. It, it's a, I was, you know, because you, you think about the dating issues and all the challenges that are going on today, and I often think about, uh, yeah, back in our day, you know, we had to deal with the fathers of those girls, and we had to deal with the moms and dads of those folks because it was an institutional thing that I was running into, not just dating this person or dating that person. And now people are going it by themselves, and there's loneliness, and there's a, there's abuse, there's, you know, and, and it's partly, again, because we're just throwing our kids to the wolves. And as I was thinking about this, uh, in Jim Daly's article, he talks about how um, Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times, you know, kind of gets it right about what the problem is. But then he gets it wrong by caricaturing this or putting this in the context that, the, you know, having two parents is a privilege. And so I guess the question I have for you is focus on the family has been focusing on this for a long, long, long time. But how can we get our culture to refocus on the family? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that we can do. One of them is, is having policies highlight uh, and, and help us turn back to the to importance and the valuing of marriage within society. And then just personal behaviors that do that and also value the structure of the family uh, and within our society and show that within our policies. And I I really, I wish uh, every couple could go through some type of really healthy marital counseling to learn how to do healthy, constructive communication, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be awesome to have them? But really as parents, if we can begin to teach our kids 
how to be contributors within relationships rather than consumers, we can begin there. Because as a contributor, you learn to power through adversity, through selfishness, because you're thinking about another person and you're thinking about the relationship. As a consumer, all you're thinking about is yourself. And we know that everything about culture is training us how to be consumers, whether we know it or like it or not. We're trained that way behaviorally, and it's no different once we enter marriage, and especially if we haven't had an example early on. So it begins with who we're parenting now because that's the next generation Mm -hmm. of marriage, and then in the current, looking at the policies and accessibility for families to be able to get the help they need. You just heard Greg Seltz refer to a column by Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times. The title of that piece, The One Privilege Liberals Ignore. For those of you familiar with Kristoff, he's a veteran columnist with the Times, as you might guess, he's a voice very much of the left. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. Kristoff begins with these words, quote, American liberals have led the campaign to reduce child poverty since Franklin Roosevelt, and it's a proud legacy, but we have long had a blind spot. He continues, quote, we're often reluctant to acknowledge one of the significant drivers of child poverty, the widespread breakdown of family. For fear that to do so would be patronizing or racist. It's an issue largely for working class whites, blacks and Hispanics, albeit most prevalent among African-Americans. He continues, quote, but just as you can't have a serious conversation about poverty without discussing race, you also can't engage unless you consider single parent households, end quote. And he's actually in this article citing a book we're going to discuss in coming days on the briefing in greater detail. It's by Melissa S. Carney, an economist at the University of Maryland. The title of her book is the two-parent privilege. Okay, first, Nicholas Kristof, drawing from the book and other research, offers some data points. Number one, families headed by single mothers are five times as likely to live in poverty as married couple families. Number two, children in single mother homes are less likely to graduate from high school or earn a college degree. They're more likely to become single parents themselves, perpetuating the cycle. Number three, Quote, almost 30% of American children now live with a single parent or with no parent at all. One reason for the sensitivities is large racial disparities. Single parenting is less common in white and Asian households, but only 38% of black children live with married parents, end quote. Melissa Carney, the author of the book, says, quote, the data present some uncomfortable realities. Quote, two-parent families are beneficial for children. Places that have more two-parent families have higher rates of upward mobility. Not talking about these facts is counterproductive, end quote. Well, that's a brave statement. And both Melissa Carney and Nicholas Kristoff deserve credit for raising the issue just out of concern for children. Let's just say the, the reason we discuss this should be concern for children. And Christians have to say an honest assessment of what makes for health, flourishing, happiness among children, having two parents is not accidentally sociologically and economically important. So Melissa Carney is cited by Nicholas Kristoff as saying, quote, not talking about these facts is counterproductive, end quote. Well, let me tell you what talking about them can do. Back in the 1960s, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who, by the way, served in both Democratic and Republican presidential administrations, one of America's most prominent intellectuals, Harvard professor, and uh, he was, I think, or at least sought to be intellectually honest, and in 1965, he wrote a report about the decline of marriage in the family, predominantly among black Americans. And this came in the context of the Johnson administration trying to figure out what kind of social programs would help. Now, at that point, rates of children not living with both parents, they were fairly low everywhere as compared to now. And as I said, the racial situation has actually changed a great deal. And it's gotten worse 
for many children in minority communities. But it's also gotten spectacularly worse for many white children. And even if we have to talk in these terms in this article and the data will talk in these terms, we need to recognize that the breakdown of the family is now pretty much across the board. It is now, yes, there are socioeconomic conditions. It's now racial, at least in some of the patterns. There's no way to get around that. But it's predominantly an issue of class and expectation. Years ago, I described this pattern as liberal theory, conservative lives. Brad Wilcox calls this talk left, walk right. Now, what are we talking about there? I'm just talking about this. If you go to liberal enclaves where those who are very much in the intellectual, political, social, cultural elites live, when you go to places like Capitol Hill, uh, you go to Manhattan, you go to Boston, Chicago, the wealthier suburbs and all the rest, you're going to find people who vote Democratic but live Republican. They do, as Brad Wilcox said, talk left and walk right or the pattern I describe as liberal theories, conservative lives. They're all for the sexual revolution. They're all for LGBTQ issues. They are all for liberation of all people. They are all for everything leftist. They're all for critical race theory. They're all for all those things, but not for themselves and their children. Coming up, an unexpected veto from California Governor Newsom. The first few batches signed some requires teachers to undergo an online one-hour training every year and how to support LGBTQ students when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. California has long been something of a bellwether for the nation. What we see happening there will very likely be happening elsewhere very soon. Well, sadly, the most recent legislative agenda in our nation's most populous state has been particularly distressing. Fox LA, Channel 11, summarized the latest on Newsom's desk. After a busy legislative session, all eyes are on Governor Gavin Newsom as he decides which bill will get his signature. The first few batches signed Newsom requires teachers to undergo an online one-hour training every year and how to support LGBTQ students. Another bill requires schools to have at least one gender-neutral bathroom for students in the next three years. And these bills came after the governor vetoed a different bill Friday, which would require judges to consider gender identity in custody and visitation cases for divorcing parents. Newsom describing why he vetoed it, saying a court under existing law is required to consider a child's health, safety, and welfare when determining the best interests of a child. It's that veto that has seized a lot of attention. I'm referring to Assembly Bill 957, an ominous bill that we've looked at here before on the program. Scott Furrow turned to attorney and activist Jennifer Kennedy from KKLA in Los Angeles. The fact that Governor Newsom vetoed AB 957 is truly a huge victory. I can't uh, overstate it. And really, the pushback we had from parents, grandparents, concerned citizens, voters, who all knew how devastating this would be for California families. Because remember, AB 957, that was the bill that was going to force 
judges in family court to take custody away from parents who did not embrace this gender theology, this notion that a child can change gender. And so what it was doing in a lot of ways, too, is it was putting enshrining into law a decision being made about what's right and what's wrong with respect to gender transitions, right? A legal determination. Absolutely. It was really attempting um, uh, to invade judicial discretion, as we say, to invade the ability of a judge to look at a unique family with all its unique facts and make a a consideration. Judges already consider everything with regard to families. They didn't need uh, this type of direction, this unconstitutional direction from the governor that only would have uh, kept custody with the parents who affirmed a child's gender transition. Right. So the governor vetoed that, uh, much to some surprise of a lot of people. That's for sure. In fact, I, I did hear the word livid coming out of the LGBT caucus. They were absolutely furious, and there were a lot of um, angry tweets after that from Senator Scott Weiner, of course, a co-author on that bill, and from the bill's author, Lori Wilson, mm-hmm. who herself has a transgender child, but who apparently wants to put her parenting decisions onto all the rest of California. Right. You know, and one of the things that the governor said that actually I think needs to be thought about with a lot of stuff that's happening in politics, he said, hey... If we make moves like this here, what's to stop conservatives? You know, Governor Newsom's a liberal. He's going to take that agenda. But he says, what's to stop conservatives in other states from making a similar decision and using ours as the the structure for it that we wouldn't like? And, you know, I think that's something, Jennifer, that that politicians used to understand that if I can do it, that means the other side can do it. That's right. And that's exactly, you know, the flip side of AB 957, which called for a judge to favor the affirming parent. Well, let's talk about Harrison Tinsley, the father of the boy who is being transed by the mother into a girl. But the boy is old enough to say, Dad, I'm a boy. Hmm. And so under AB 957, frankly, Harrison would have been granted custody because he's affirming the little boy's gender. Isn't that right? Yeah. So just an interesting thing. Anyway, so we want to give uh, credit, you know, whether whatever the reason. So people come out, oh, he's running for president, so he has to do that. Well, maybe. You know, I think that might be true. There's a lot of political considerations that go into these things. But one of the reasons for being an activist and one of the reasons for us not just to vote, we all should vote, but to also let our politicians know, hey, we will be voting and this is how we will be voting is because it's very influential on them because at the end of the day, they would like to get reelected. Exactly. And yes, we hear we hear the word on the street that, oh, he did this for a political expediency. But the truth is our grassroots pushback was relentless and it made this bill toxic for yeah. him. And had we not pushed back, I have no doubt that he would have signed it because it sailed through the legislator, le- legislature and he totally would have signed it had we not been as vocal as we were with our own local reps as well as in his own office. And that's something I think that maybe is good that's happening in California and across the country is that the citizens, Republicans and Democrats, independents, are becoming aware of what's happening in Sacramento because, as we say a lot, most people oppose this idea. Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative do not think that this is something that the the court should be 
uh, deciding in this way. But they, the reason they happen is no one's paying attention. That's right. And I think COVID silver lining, I'll say it again, the silver lining is that blew open a lot of secrecy in our schools right. and uh, forced us to focus on the legislature, who was really trying to come down on us hard with all kinds of COVID restrictions. That brought a lot of people into Sacramento. And now we've got a real spotlight on what they're doing up there. And it's making all the difference. So yeah. I thank everyone who made calls and picked up the phone or wrote letters. It really mattered. It matters greatly. You know, Jennifer, a lot has been going on in the area of parental rights. I've got to tell you, as a parent, my kids are 14 and 11. Today, we signed up for parent-teacher conferences, which are strangely optional. <laughs> and, you know, I'm interested in their grades and how they're doing academically. But when I go to these conferences, what I want to know is how are they doing emotionally? Are they behaving in class? Do they get along with other kids? What's going on with them in the six or seven hours that you have them that I don't? That's what I want to know, and I think as a parent, I need to know. And one of the biggest controversies in our culture today is the schools deciding that if your child is transitioning, if they are going by another name or another pronouns and others, that you that schools, not only is it not your right to know, but schools are allowed to lie to you about that, which has been a big deal. Where are we at? So seven school districts now have passed parental rights policies that say no parents have a right to know when they will. That's right. And to back up a little bit, that uh, the parent-teacher conference is a really good example of, unfortunately, what is happening in schools, where if a child is going by a new name and new pronouns while at school, the teacher, this is a policy they're doing right now, the teacher is supposed to ask the child, hey, is it okay if I tell your mom and dad this? And the child gets to say, no, no, don't tell that. So in that conference, Scott, mm. you could be sitting there and they would obligingly use the child's real name, the birth name, while knowing full well that during the school day they are referring to that child by an opposite sex chosen name and using the wrong pronouns. And that is what schools think right now they're entitled and required to do. You know, and the, the crazy part about that is in all of the language about that. And I know a lot of it's not correct, but the language is, is that if your child is dealing with gender dysphoria and stuff, then they're highly suicidal, that there's all kinds of things going on. And the notion that you would hide suicidal tendencies from a parent because the kid says, oh, don't tell mom and dad. That's crazy. It is crazy. And that is one of the biggest problems, actually, the biggest Achilles heel in the opponent's uh, argument against parental notification policies. Rob Bonta, our attorney general, he himself in his lawsuit against Chino Valley, he says that 86% of transgender or trans identifying children uh, have suicidal thoughts. And so how do you say that this group of children is going to have this high risk of suicidality, but turn around and go, but we're not going to tell parents? You're telling me that if my kid identifies as being in that suicide club, then you're not going to tell a parent? Yeah. It makes no sense. Coming up, we'll look at the ideology fueling the left and all things woke. Unlike the Christian faith, which offers absolutely categorical redemption, in the context of the woke movement, it's very elusive and not something that ultimately, over time, will ever be fully attained. And the Christian outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. 
Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Whether you're into running or running or running or running or running that's actually mostly walking, running with the Peloton tread isn't just one thing. From walks and hikes to sprint intervals, we have classes for every level and instructors to support you all the way through. Whatever you're in the mood for, we can get you in the zone. See for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Visit OnePeloton.com slash home trial. Terms apply. Welcome to What If, the show where I, Jake from State Farm, answer your insurance what ifs. We've got a call from Millie. What's up? Hi, Jake. Uh, what if, hypothetically, a moose gets mad at my car and <gasps> rams into my windshield? Hypothetically. Oh, just file a claim on the app. At State Farm, we're there for your what ifs. Great, but what if the moose eats my phone? Hypothetically. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. Brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. As we follow the rise in what we call woke today, you might be thinking, this is just crazy. I don't know that I'd say you were wrong, but what I will point out is that it's not just thoughtlessness. What we're seeing in the areas of sex, gender, race, class, crime, and criminal prosecution is all rooted in a coherent, comprehensive, and increasingly influential set of ideas that emerged from a broad academic field of knowledge known as critical social theory. I'm quoting there from an important new book. Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer are the authors of Critical Dilemma, The Rise of Critical Theories and the Implications for Church and Society. I was pleased to have both Neil and Pat as guests on my program. Now, what are the ideas at the heart of the woke movement, and why are they so dangerous? In our book, we identify four core ideas at the heart of wokeness or critical social theory. And those are the social binary, the idea that society is divided into oppressor and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, and physical ability, and so forth. And second, well, what makes one group oppressed? And the answer is hegemonic power. That's the second idea. So hegemonic power means the power of the dominant group, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals, to impose their values on culture. That's what oppression is when people impose their values on culture, and the rest of us take it for granted as normal or neutral. The third idea is lived experience, the idea that we can really know the truth about social reality only through our lived experience of oppression, and it often as a part of being an oppressed group. So if I'm a woman, I understand sexism. If I'm a person of color, I really understand racism, and that's how we gain access to the reality of our social oppression. And finally, the goal of critical social theories is social justice. That's idea number four. When they talk about social justice, they're referring to breaking down the systems and structures that produce the social binary and social oppression. Those four ideas, the social binary, uh, hegemonic power, lived experience, and social justice are at the root of all these woke movements we see in society. Now, is there any redemption in, you know, we come to this understanding and then we strive toward redemption and resolution? Is there ever the possibility under this critical theory, any resolution? Is there any uh, way that the oppressor, for example, as as defined in the theory, uh, can be absolved? Or is this just a, a way to manipulate um, that that's never really resolved? Georgine, that's a great question. 
part of the problem with critical social theory and with what woke ideology is requiring of people is that the ability to actually come to some type of redemptive final destination is very elusive. For those who are categorized in the oppressed category, woke ideology would say that your life is about a continued effort to try to absolve yourself from your oppressor status. And that is ongoing. You've got to continue to signal that with your life, continue to divest of your privilege, continue to try to be on the right side of history. And unlike the Christian faith, which offers, you know, absolutely categorical redemption, in the context of the woke movement, again, it's it's very elusive and not something that ultimately over time will ever be fully attained. Yeah, there's there's no absolution. Now, you write that critical theories are about more than race. The incorporation of gender, sexual orientation, class and other factors in CRT's analysis of racism is the theme that runs throughout the last three decades of CRT scholarship. Often referred to as intersectionality, it can be um, definitionally amorphous at times, leaving defect detectors confused. Uh, can you explain that? Because I, th- I think many of us are confused and it doesn't seem like there's a solid line that you can come to where you have that aha moment and, and fully comprehend where, where the lines are drawn. Yeah. So critical theory is this broad umbrella term that encompasses many different critical social mm-hmm. theories, including critical race theory, queer theory, critical pedagogy, intersectional feminism and a host of other critical social theories. So you have this umbrella category and these subcategories. And one thing that we've seen with Christians is that they'll hear a term like critical race theory, and they'll say, oh, okay, this is just going to provide some insights for us into race alone. We're going to apply these tools and and, and methods just to look at how uh, racial groups have subordinated, have been subordinated throughout history. We're not going to apply it to gender or sexuality. That would go against our Christian worldview. The problem is that from the earliest days of critical race theory, its very founders insisted that you cannot separate Mm -hmm. race and class, and gender, and sexuality. So Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality. She's one of the founders of CRT. Derek Bell, the godfather of CRT. Both of them were emphatic that as critical race theorists, we must dismantle not just the white supremacist culture we live in, but also the patriarchy, and also heterosexism. And so over the last, say, 20 or 30 years, all these various disciplines, like critical race theory and queer theory and intersectional feminism, they've actually connected with each other and cross-pollinated under this intersectional framework. So today, all of these critical social theories work together to undo all these various forms of oppression. Coming up, our understanding of race. We began to see in the professing church a focus on ethnic identity as the primary identity marker for certain groups. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. It's not surprising that most of us have very little familiarity with critical theories or critical social theory. 
And yet, critical theory has permeated and guided the thinking of much of our culture, from activists on the street to corporate culture, and yes, even in the church. Let's return for more of my conversation with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer, talking about their new book, Critical Dilemma. You refer to the influence of critical theories as a society-wide problem. Um, how so? Again, the, the language, we're hearing it more often. How, how widely is it actually infiltrating policy and how people are actually interacting with one another? Well, it's interesting, Georgine, that there has been an onslaught of DEI training, for instance, this the idea that we're going to think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and we're going to think about those terms as they're framed by critical social theory. And so we're seeing those kinds of programs in all types of corporate environments, political environments, educational environments, and those those training sessions that are being offered are all connected to critical social theory. We're also seeing that the church is beginning to adopt certain kinds of ideas and perspectives that are really downstream from these ideas. One of the things that alarmed Neil and I, and it's partly the impetus of why we wrote this book, is that we began to see in the professing church, in the professing evangelical church, a focus on ethnic identity as the primary or at least functioning uh, primary identity marker for certain groups. And we know as Christians that our identity in Christ must be what is most preeminent. And that theoretically is certainly uh, still you know, stated by most people that would attend an evangelical church. But we begin to see functionally that people were beginning to think of their social location or their ethnic location as the primary understanding in terms of how they would work out their identity within the church and within society. And that kind of thing is, is death in terms of Christian unity. It will thwart it entirely. And, and that is, you know, one of the things that is having such a strong effect on the church. And then we also see that in society. Uh, you know, identity politics have never been more popular than they have over the last three to five years in, in, in my memory in terms of, of my thinking about politics. And cancel culture, for instance, comes along with that, that, if, that it's, not, it's no longer the quality of the idea. It's the quality of the identity of the person offering the idea that makes the idea something that we might would or choose or believe or trust. And, and all of that swimming in our society and culture is part and parcel to the push and the penetration that critical social theory is having. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most notable of the 15 tenets of critical race theory? Yeah, there are a lot. We tried to organize them into sort of four main ideas. Again, the four main ideas are central tenets of critical race theory. The first and most prominent tenet is the idea that racism is normal, permanent, and pervasive. That racism is all over society, and, but it, and it's, it's, it's everywhere. Wherever you go, it's ubiquitous. It's always affecting your life. If you're a person of color, you're always being oppressed by racism. Now, people might hear that central tenet and think, well, that's, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm a person of color, and I don't feel like I'm daily oppressed. Well, that gets into the second tenet of critical race theory, which is the idea that racism is hidden beneath disguises like colorblindness, equality, even civil rights theory. These are actually masks to disguise the way that racism actually functions today. 
So you know, organizations or corporations or governments might claim to value equality and meritocracy and colorblindness, but really mm. those policies that are billed as colorblind are actually reinforcing the racial status quo. And it's a form of racism. The second idea. The third idea is, again, lived experience. It's obviously related to critical theory of central tenets. So critical race theory would say that the, 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 it's crucial to have the lived experience of racism in order to really understand racism. And because of that, we should defer to the experiential knowledge of people of color, uh, whether they're black or Asian or Hispanic, that only they can truly grasp the, the depth of racism in their society. And then finally, intersectionality is the fourth central idea of critical race theory, which just states that you can't merely attack racism without also attacking sexism, heterosexism, classism, ableism, and a host of other oppressions. That these systems and structures all have to be dismantled at the same time, and you cannot be truly anti-racist but you're also, in the words of Ibram Kendi, you also have to be anti-sexist, anti-homophobic. You can't be transphobic. You can't be classist. All of these oppressions stand or fall together. You include a chapter on queer theory, and my guess is most of our listeners would never think that they have an interest in queer theory or that it's relevant to them in any way. But what does it have to do with gender studies and feminism? And I think it's important that we understand it because it's permeating the culture and certainly for your sons and daughters in university and graduate school uh, are being steeped in all of this. What is queer, queer theory and, and why is it important that we understand it? What does it have to do with the gender and feminism? Right. Well, I only wish it were relegated to graduate school, right? If they're only showing up mm-hmm. in graduate level programs and among adults, it's not the case. So for example, in 2021, uh, the TV program Blues Clues, which is targeted at mm-hmm. preschool kids, it's a cartoon program. Well, for Pride Month of 2021, they had a uh, YouTube video that was a drag queen singing a song about Pride Month to the tune of the Ansco Marching. And it had included lyrics like uh, about uh, asexual, ace, bi, and pan grownups you see love each other so proudly. They all go marching the, bi, the, the Pride Parade. Well, ace, bi, and pan refers to asexual, bisexual, and pansexual adults. And they had a cartoon beaver with double mastectomy scars where her breasts have been removed in the cartoon. And this is being watched by preschoolers who don't even know their shapes and their letters yet. So this is just one of the many poisonous fruits of queer theory. It was a a field that developed in the early 90s and late 90s by people like Judith Butler. And it focuses on dismantling the gender binary and allowing people to express themselves however they feel like, whether male or female or some other gender, so today, when you hear people talking about how there's there's no gender binary, there are actually a hundred genders. You can be gender fluid. You can be pansexual. All those ideas can be traced back to the academic literature from about 30 years ago, and that's why it's so important for Christians to not assume that these ideas are just being taught in some crazy progressive graduate school to 30-year-olds. That is just not the case. All of the things you see in our culture in media, in music, in entertainment, in sports, in government, they can all be traced back to these ideas around sexuality and gender. It traces back to this one of queer theory. Coming up, a clear assessment. We hold up these critical theories to the scrutiny of the Bible, and then we find that they're completely incompatible. A few more minutes on Critical Dilemma. Stay with us. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over. You're out of breath. Your constant dry cough just won't go away. It might be asthma, it might be COPD, but it could be interstitial lung disease. 
ILD won't wait, and neither should you. So ask your doctor. Find a pulmonologist. The sooner you know, the sooner you and your family can face ILD together. With ILD, knowledge is power. And your strongest advocate is you. Go to lungsandyou.com forward slash learn more. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata with Johnny and Friends. Did you know that more than 80 million Americans daily depend on AM radio for conversations, news, weather reports, and emergency information? Well, a new bill in Congress would ensure AM radio remains in cars. Because when cell and internet services are down, this free service could be your only access to vital communication. Visit DependOnAM.com to learn how to make your voice heard. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we assess critical theory and the subtle and not-so-subtle ways it's shaping contemporary thought, we must resolve to hold this worldview up for scrutiny. In order to scrutinize the value of this social theory, we need to weigh it against the truth of Scripture. Let's return for a few more minutes of my conversation with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer on their new book, Critical Dilemma. Can you sort of outline how it's laid out? You have uh, three different parts. And as you pointed out, I appreciate that you don't just leave us with a, a knowledge of what's happening, but you also encourage us to consider how to respond in a constructive way. Outline how the book is structured. So the first section, as you said, is about understanding critical social theory. So what are these ideas? What's the difference between, say, critical theory and critical race theory and queer theory? Where do these ideas come from? If we trace them back to Karl Marx and the Frankfurt School, we go through the core ideas at the heart of critical theory, critical race theory. Then we even spend a chapter describing the positive insights that some critical race theorists and critical social theorists have. It's not completely nothing but falsehood and poison. If it were, people would just ignore it. The very seduction of these theories is that they get some ideas right and they suck you in that way. So when a warn Christians, hey, there's some actual truth there, but be very careful in how you interpret it. The first section is all that understanding. The second section then turns to critique. We critique these ideas very harshly from a biblical standpoint and say, let's compare these claims to the claims of the Bible. What does God say about things like race? and sex and gender, comparing the ideas, say, of queer theory to the idea that God ordained male and female as real eternal categories that are good for us. They're his design. They're not oppressive. So we, again, we hold up these critical theories to the scrutiny of the Bible and then say, and they find, we find that they're completely incompatible. And then the final section is engaging. We ask, what can we do now as Christians? How can we stem the tide of critical social theory, both in the culture and in the church, and we give some uh, slogans that are very common that are really ways that will devastate your church. So ideas like, you know, all people of color are oppressed. We say, well, what do you mean by oppression? Is that really true? Do you, do you have to walk around as a white person on the eggshells feeling like you're always racist, you're always at fault? We say, well, no, that's not true. Uh, ideas like uh, the gender binary is oppressive. That's, that's not true. That gender binary is God-ordained. 
So, and we also explain why are these critical social theories so attractive to many people? And we give many reasons, but one is, I think, at the, in the end of the day, they're a way to feel good about yourself. They're a way to justify yourself. Because as human beings, we all know there's nothing wrong with us. Even non-Christians feel the pressure of God's law on our hearts, and they want some way to say, we're actually, we're fine, we're okay, we're justified, we're righteous. So critical theory gives you a way to feel like you're not a bigot, you're loving, you're compassionate, you're on the right side of history. And so we, we point out how we can engage people, especially non-Christian, and show them that actually you can't cleanse yourself. The only real healing and restoration that you can find is through the free gift of Jesus Christ that God offered us. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. You can find my full conversation with Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer at ChristianOutlook.com. If you enjoyed the program, take a moment to sign up for our podcast at ChristianOutlook.com. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. Here in Manhattan, when how long you live depends on where you live, it's time to raise health. When your quality of care depends on who you are and health seems out of your hands, it's time to raise voices, raise expectations for better access, better outcomes, person by person, block by block. With a powerful system of care that's for everyone. Northwell is here, Manhattan, and we came to raise health. Visit northwell.edu slash NYC.